0: The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit CPIUSA.org. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's going to be a great conversation here tonight. So glad you're here to join us. Uh, We're going to have a great guest on to have a conversation uh after that i'll continue making some opening remarks we'll answer super chats we'll do the roll call it'll be a great show tonight so hit the like button hit the subscribe button hit the notifications bell we're going to have a great show uh should be fun welcome everybody welcome welcome welcome
1: Century. i say that the century on which we are entering
0: can be and must be the century of the common man a radical redistribution of economic power I mean, we know that racism is just—it's a biological capitalism. Everything would be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to have you here with us. So I'm now going to bring on my very good friend and ally and fellow anti-imperialist, a long time acquaintance, somebody that I have been at many protests and demonstrations with, spent a lot of time out in the streets leafleting with, uh, somebody that I've worked to raise awareness about the Belt and Road Initiative with, uh, someone who is is very well aware of the truth about what's going on with Russia and the hope. Of the world land bridge and the emerging alternative economy and the danger of free market neoliberal capitalism as put forward by the dark forces of london uh whether they be adam smith or milton friedman or friedrich von hayek and ayn rand my good friend daniel burke daniel burke from the schiller institute everyone
1: welcome daniel
0: burke so glad to have you here with us welcome
1: that was an incredible introduction. Thank you so much. I've never been introduced with uh, Adam Smith and uh, Mil- Milton Friedman included, and I loved it. Thank you very much. And and thank you for everything that you have done, and especially in the incredible work that you and uh, the Center for Political Innovation are doing to build up this great event that's taking place in Chicago on August 6th which I'm very proud to be participating in. And I really hope that we see a lot of people there who are watching tonight.
0: Absolutely. Yes, I guess just to remind people, the event is coming up August 6th. It will be in Chicago area. It'll be in Deerfield at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. Um, And it will be tremendous. And Daniel Burke will be there as a guest representing the Schiller Institute. We'll have some other guests, Party of Communists. People's Party, uh, the Free Alex Saab Committee. Uh, Tara Reed is going to be there. Uh, we're going to hear from Garland Nixon, Dan Kabalik. Uh, we're going to hear from Peter Coffin. It's going to be just a tremendous event. August 6th, if you can be there, that would be awesome. And I'll, uh, I'll remind folks once again at the end of our conversation about this upcoming event. But Daniel has a lot he wants to update us on. I think the first thing that Daniel wanted to touch on is uh, I was honored. Uh, to be listed, along with a number of members of the Schiller Institute, as well as uh, members of Congress uh, and former presidents of countries, on this official Ukrainian government blacklist. Uh, so wow, Wow, uh, you know, I made the list. Uh, and so did so many other members of the uh, of the of the Schiller Institute. So Daniel Burke, what do you make of this uh, Ukrainian government? blacklist, list of Russian propaganda narratives that's been put up there. So many of your associates are on there, right? Diane Sayre and and Helga zepplerouche and Jason Ross and Harley Schlanger. It's like every person who's ever shaken hands with Daniel Burke is <laughs> Daniel Burke, right? But watch out if you shake hands with Daniel Burke, it's on a
1: list. But but go ahead, Daniel. I'm going to have to meet the other people who I haven't met, but yes. um, I, uh, okay, well, first of all, uh, I have a little statement that we, that we put out uh, that talks about this, but one of the things that we point out is I'm not going to read the statement, but just point some of the things that are in it. Uh, you can go to the Schiller Institute if you want to read it. Uh, this this thing, according to uh, what they claim, this center for Ukrainian center for countering disinformation was created in 2021 with the idea of becoming quote a vital hub of counter disinformation strategy and resources, not just domestically but internationally. And according to a briefing by a guy named Yermak, the head of the office of the president of Ukraine for President Zelensky. This has been brewing since 2014, when of course you had the uh, Western backed Maidan coup with neo-Nazis and the snipers in the Maidan and Victoria Nuland handing out brownies in, uh, in the Maidan and so forth. Uh, and of course, Nuland claimed the US had spent $5 billion on making sure that that would happen. So this is sort of like, uh, think of it as Victoria Nuland's uh, program very much. And that would put a a, a sort of a greater clarity on it. Um, Or it's it's a continuity from that, at the very least, it seems to be. Um, And these people claim that everyone who is participating and who's on this list was part of uh, a Russian disinformation policy. So they basically think that everyone is a puppet of Putin. I mean, Putin. You know he controls our inflation he controls the economy he's like the most powerful man in the world and then he has you know all of these people on the list completely uh, uh under his own spell but um the 30 people uh, the 31st people on the list are all people who appeared uh at schiller institute conferences online international conferences uh over the past several months mm. um uh, beginning around um, shortly after the the uh, the special military operation began, and um, it's funny, you know. I mean, like uh, Harley Schlanger. He's of course he's with the LaRouche organization. I was commenting on Twitter that his picture is a picture that was taken of him at a wedding, mm. and he's got like his he's got his tie opened up, and he looks like he's had a bottle. I mean, a a a, a, a drink of champagne, mm. um, but. So I think it's really great to see the response that everyone has had to this, which is just like like yours, pride and and uh, and enjoyment of being recognized for the hard work that you've been doing. And uh, I'm very hopeful that the Schiller Institute conferences will continue to provide a, a a place, a forum of discussion for people to establish a real solution to the crisis, because it's clear that telling the truth. And working through how to replace this bankrupt and collapsing neoliberal system is very dangerous to the people who want to continue to execute these policies of war and uh, privation. Um, and so I encourage people to think of it that way. Indeed. Um, you know,
0: I think what's particularly dangerous is the fact that they're labeling anybody really who has an alternative narrative of advance when it comes to. The Ukraine situation, if you say anything other than, you know, uh, Russia is just being ruthless and evil and attacking this poor, innocent country. If you point out anything about 2014, anything about what led up to this, anything about the shelling of civilians in the eastern region, uh, they just say that's disinformation and they don't have a response to it. They don't have a rebuttal to any of these facts. They just call it propaganda and there's no response and they just shut you down. Um, it is it is a, a non-thinking response, um, and it's it's disturbing, and it follows. It fits a, a whole trend that's developing, and I'm sure you want to comment on that. I'm, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I I've read that Scott Ritter pointed out. Scott Ritter was on the list as well, and I got to meet him at the Kingston Peace and Freedom Rally that came up uh, in New York, Kingston, New York, uh, last Sunday. Mm-hmm. But Scott Ritter pointed out that in times of war, blacklists often turn into hit lists. Mm -hmm. And so there is a very serious situation here. Um, You know, there it's two sided on the one side, there is um, the barbarity the the viciousness that the terrifying nature of what these people are willing to do, because what are they doing? They're destroying Ukraine. They're completely destroying Ukraine, killing, you know, th- throwing people to their death. Uh, on the one hand, there's that. And on the other hand, there is the clear evidence that if you speak out and you fight, then you can make yourself dangerous to these people. And uh, and that suggests that the, that the overall project of creating this kind of um, sufficiently powerful independent political efforts in the United States to... Just change gears to, to, to shift course. It suggests that it is really possible, and it's something that they're really worried about. Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to pull up this image, this image because it's very very important.
0: Uh, mm. This image I'm I'm pulling up um, um, here. Let me just let me just pull up this this image uh, here. Um, it's an important image that that many people in the United States have not seen. And i think it just it's everything we need to know about ukraine it's yes. not being told to us and it's, it's this image right before us this is the alley of angels in donbass and this is a monument not to the adults but to all the children who have died uh since 2014 and the shelling of donetsk and lugansk the eastern regions where the population is primarily russian speaking the eastern regions of ukraine uh these are the areas uh these are the children who have died at the hands of the ukrainian government backed by the united states um and they have been dying for eight years straight eight years straight they have been dying they've been bombing them these there have been whole families hiding in their basements there are children who found you know live uh you know unexploded bombs and shells in their front yards there have been drone strikes and attacks there's been a food blockade for eight years the russian-speaking peoples of the eastern regions who vote for the communist party who vote for the party of regions Uh, Who you know have an economic relationship with Russia and are sympathetic to Russia, despite being part of Ukraine, for eight years they have been bombarded and attacked. And mainstream U.S. media said absolutely nothing about it. And 14,000 people overall died. Some say it may be as high as 16,000. Russia took over in over two million refugees over the course of the last eight years. People fleeing um and and what's going on now is that Russia is trying to put a stop to this the people of these regions since Ukraine will not let them reintegrate back into Ukraine it will not integrate them back into society with the Minsk agreement uh now uh they have declared independence and Russia is working to secure their independence that's what's going on in Ukraine it's not that difficult to understand but by by making you know just pretending none of this ever happened you know just saying that these lives don't matter because they are Russian speaking, because CNN chose not to highlight them. Uh, That's the only way they can get away with this narrative. They have to just pretend the other side of the story isn't there, that these lives don't matter, these people haven't been dying. Yes, I feel bad about the fact that people in Kiev are hiding in their basements. I feel bad about that. But these folks have been hiding in their basements for eight years straight. They've been fleeing their homes, and now now Russia is moving in to protect them. Um, Do you have anything you want to say about that, Daniel?
1: Uh, I THINK you're, YOU'VE ADDRESSED IT VERY WELL, AND IF PEOPLE CONSIDER THAT, uh, that THIS uh, INDIFFERENCE TO HUMAN LIFE THAT IS EXPRESSED BY uh, THIS GOVERNMENT, WHICH IS THIS UKRAINIAN GOVERNMENT THAT HAS INCORPORATED NEO-NAZIS INTO ITSELF uh, UNDER THE DIRECTION OF THE UNITED STATES AND OTHERS, uh, THIS um, BARBARITY is such that if you look into the mind of people who would do this you can comprehend how they would be so insane as to risk nuclear war which is what they're doing right now and put us in the potential of a of a miscalculation or a crisis that would trigger that and that would cause this kind of loss and devastation so many you know incredibly many more times over um so I just, you know, I think we should consider that and the fact that um, that's not – other nations are not putting up with that. They're not, they're not willing to accept that that's going to be the rule of, of the world.
0: Yeah. Now, also, I, I wanted to raise this. Now, uh, Brian Barajas says Lindsey Graham is pushing a bill to identify Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism considering the blacklist from British intelligence, uh, uh, from what does it mean labeling these persons as terrorists? Do you think the people on this list would be labeled as terrorists if Russia were labeled a state sponsor of terror? Well, I'll respond to that by pointing out that the, the state sponsor of terrorism label, that is actually a form of sanctions that's imposed mm. on a country. Uh, that's very different. So that's a completely different thing than legally designating an individual as a terrorist. If they designate a country like Cuba, Libya under Gaddafi, Sudan, are designated, Iran, or designated as state sponsors of terror, and then special sanctions are applied to them. That's what that means. So that's not the same thing as labeling then anyone who associates with that state as, as a terrorist. So that's, that's not what that means. But uh, do you want to respond to that person's question?
1: Um, just that I'm not sure if they're referring to something else besides this, because to my knowledge, this is not a British intelligence list. Although I was in a space last night with Samira Khan, in which we had an admitted British intelligence agent come in and try to screw with things under the under the, the uh, rubric of a media watcher. So hmm. there is – anyway, there's – but that's that's all I, I can say at the moment.
0: Interesting. Yeah, well, uh, one thing that is also of interest, I think, is the the fact that so much of the global economy at this point is breaking free from the domination of, of Wall Street and London. The reason that they're escalating uh, with Ukraine right now and the reason that there's a a provocation in the works against china is because this new economy is speeding ahead and that is very very clear i mean the fact that that iran and venezuela Mm -hmm. uh, are about to have a a deal to you know start joint agricultural products right that the usa has made it hard for venezuela to import food so now iran who's also been blocked out by by the united states they are going to team up with venezuela and start growing their own food together um and have joint agricultural operations um and you know the shanghai cooperation organization i believe uh this this month there was a great gala in tehran by the shanghai Cooperation organization cooperation organization that chinese and iranian relations are getting stronger um so i mean this alternative economy is emerging and if the united states yes. if we want to get out of the nightmare we're in i mean we are officially in a recession as of mm-hmm, today, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the recession is defined as as two consecutive quarters of of shrinking D- GDP, and we have officially had that. Right? Uh, we are now in a recession. Um, you know, if we want to get out of this recession, if we want to start seeing economic opportunity in in the Midwest and the Rust Belt, uh, we ought to join this alternative economy instead of trying to fight
1: it. Uh, what do you have to say on that, Daniel? I think that that's. That's the thing. That's the it. That's, that's the way to go. That's the mission that we can organize people around that does not require people to have um, you know, one particular ideology or another. It means that you have to look at the genuine shift that's happening. And I can go through just a couple of statements. Um, you know, uh, There was a meeting in Tashkent yesterday in which we had the foreign ministers of the eight member nations of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization it's China, Russia, India, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan meeting, uh, and there are, they're just the members. Then you have the observers, which is Belarus, Afghanistan, Iran, and Mongolia, and another six are in dialogue status. So they got together, and they're talking through how are our nations going to collaborate to feed our people and feed humanity, as you're describing with Iran and, and Venezuela. It's very, very hopeful. And if you look at the videos of like Wang Yi meeting Lavrov, they are very optimistic. They're, they're like, they're like uh, Lavrov says to Wang Yi, um, you're among friends here and invites them in. And they go very confidently and move along uh, in, their, in their program of creating a new and better economic system. I mean, I do really want to recommend that people who want to get a deeper sense of this, Look at the LaRouche organization's coverage of the BRICS Plus Summit that took place, um, what was that, five weeks ago? Uh, The president of Argentina, Argentina, which is suffering immensely, they have a 64% inflation rate in July. They had a 60% inflation rate or 61% in June. But he came forward and he said, we need a new international economic system. The new name for peace is development, which is a reference to a remarkable um, encyclical written by Pope Paul VI called Populorum Progressio, I think in 1967. The new name for peace is development. Uh, So nations all across the world that are trying to join into the BRICS, trying to join into the SCO, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, and of course into the Belt and Road Initiative, they know what they're getting into. They're getting into a future of infrastructure, science, technology, and defending the rights of the population, the, 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 uh, the, the sacred quality of human life. And if we could get a shift going in the United States to, and understand that that's going on, I think we could inspire a lot of people to demand it here.
0: Now, what do you make of Nancy Pelosi? deciding that she is going to go to Taiwan, which is just a straight-up provocation to China, right? That's a high-level U.S. government official going to to Taiwan. You know, it sounds like almost giving recognition to Taiwan. Why is this provocation happening? I hear now the House of Representatives has voted to approve it. What in the world are they doing?
1: You know, you you may have a better answer on this than me, Caleb. I mean, it just looks insane. You know, I mean, the... The, Polis, the, the Global Times, go read what the Global Times has to say about what they're considering doing in response. And it includes things like a no-fly zone over the area. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very explicit that the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is going to respond to Nancy Pelosi. Um, so I, I'm not, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a part of a pattern. Of course, Mike Pompeo said, I'm going to come with you, Nancy. Um And there's also major action from, I think, from Tom Cotton. Yeah, Cotton is pushing for Pelosi to go. Uh Mark Milley is saying, we'll, we'll protect her. We'll do what's necessary to ensure a safe, safe conduct of their visit. These are lunatic. I mean, yes. I, I, I'm not sure what's going on other than that this could be, this could be a major escalation that, you know, like what happened over the first few months of the year, when when we weren't sure what was gonna happen. Is there gonna be an invasion? Is there not gonna be an invasion? And then the provocations of U, the Ukrainian regime and of NATO and of the United States passed the line and, and that's how we got to where we are.
0: Well, I mean, I think one thing that, that is important for us to keep in mind is that that there's a reason that China takes so much offense to this. And I think this needs to be understood because You know, you talk about the British Empire and the horrendous crimes that the British Empire has committed around the world. Marxists have an understanding of imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, the rule of the world by these big banks and corporations that hold back economic development. So when we talk about empires and imperialism. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, a global financial system, grinding people into poverty. We're talking about like the Roman Empire and the way it kept the world in poverty, holding back development. We're talking about the British Empire. We're talking about about the global capitalist financial system. But in Eurasia, right, we're talking Russia and China. Historically, those parts of the world have been better when the different nationalities, and the different ethnicities and the different religious groups have been together that is that is the reality right and and if you look at you know why is you know Ivan the Terrible so loved in Russia why is the Qing dynasty so loved in China it's because they brought those regions together you know united states was settled what 3 400 years ago uh well you know you know eurasia those Folks have been living together for 5,000 years at least, right? So the, the long-standing rivalries and tensions between people in different part, parts of the Eurasian mainland is, is very vast. But in the history over the course of the past 5,000 years of, of Russia and of China, when things are getting better for the people in those areas, it's when they're together. And when things are not going well, it's when they're all fighting with each other. And one of the most important achievements of the Chinese Communist Party is they created one China, right? Because when the British were in China during the century of humiliation with the opium wars, when people were dying in mass, when there was mass malnutrition and mass poverty and, and China was just a, a, you know, a, an outpost of, of drug addiction and Shanghai was just one giant child prostitution center where sailors from all over the world were going to to rape chinese children and and you know the horrors of what china endured during that century of humiliation the way those horrors were carried out was by having hong kong separate that's how it was made separate was with the opium wars by having taiwan separate uh and and having having you know having tibet separate by having you know the islamic you know regions separate uh you know by, by dividing china and, and having every region divided, that's a way they were able to keep it poor. But the Chinese Communist Party brought peace to China and economic development by creating one China. And that one China includes Tibet, and that one China includes the Uyghur regions, and it includes Hong Kong, and it includes Taiwan. Uh, and China, the Chinese Communist Party has emphasized, we will fight for one China. We're not gonna be divided anymore. So by Nancy Pelosi going there, that is an affront. That is a basic affront. Nancy Pelosi is saying by going to Taiwan, we're gonna try to prevent you from having one China. That's what she's saying, and that's why that's such a provocation. That is a direct attack. I mean, could you imagine a uh, uh, you know a Chinese official going to Iowa? or going to uh, Wisconsin and trying to say that's a separate government that would be interpreted as an act of aggression trying to tear apart the United States you know when the confederates tried to tried to break from the United States we had a big civil war over it right so if some some foreign government were actively trying to break apart you know, the 50 states that make up the United States we would obviously not be okay with that and uh, and that's why this is so important and that's a context we don't get and they there's a lot of confusion because, again, you and I and, and leftists and socialists were against empires. And so people say, oh, well, Taiwan is, is little and it's this, this <laughs> island that wants to break from the empire. That's not what's going on there at <laughs> all. That's not you're 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 missing. And they love to hijack left wing narratives. They would have mm-hmm. you believe that the neo-Nazis of the Azov battalion that are being armed with billions of dollars by the Pentagon. They want you to think they're Che Guevara running through the woods or they're the Vietnam Vietnamese Liberation Front. They're nothing. Nothing further from the truth. These are our reactionaries armed by the biggest, biggest imperialists in the world, the United States and the, and the British. So um, I, I just wanted to give it proper context there. What did you think about that?
1: I think you are absolutely right. And I want to sort of underline your point for people by comparing the two readouts from the call between Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping this morning. It was a two-hour call at the request of Biden, uh, and uh, Biden's readout said, on Taiwan, President Biden underscored that the United States policy has not changed and that the United States strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Taiwan Strait. Uh, What was not mentioned in the U.S. readout was what President Xi said. Those who play with fire will perish by it. Yeah. There you go. You know, so we are uh, we are rapidly reaching the situation where Washington and London and associated powers can no longer dictate. They can't dictate terms. Uh, to, to, to Russia and China. I really think, I mean, this will be an interesting situation. Like I said, who knows exactly how it's going to develop. It could turn extremely bad. It could turn into nuclear war. Uh, and on the other hand, there's a reality that is arriving very rapidly where the physical capability of the US military to, you know, to back up their, their bravado is, is not going to be sufficient. Indeed.
0: Well, we've got a couple more super chats here. Um, you may not want to comment on some of them. You can just pass if you don't want to. But uh, thoughts on Blackwater meeting with anti-Taliban forces, according to Tajikistan, Tehran Times. Do you want to say anything about that?
1: Uh, Samira knows about that. She talked about it last night. Um, but, I mean, it's what we've been talking about for, since, since the pullout. Joe Biden is committing economic genocide against uh, Afghans. And, uh, and not just that, because they're trying to use this vile logic of sanctions to uh, kill people, innocent people, until they overthrow their government. And, that, and that's the kind of direction that this whole thing is going in, including with this type of uh, Blackwater involvement. And
0: the other one is, uh, it says, leftists of the Western world need to lock arm in arm and write a documented letter to Russia and China pleading for forgiveness and for peace from the corporate fascist powers in the West. I'm a leftist and I don't want to (laughs) die. Well, there you go. I mean, you know, we can be tongue in cheek about this, but it's a very serious situation. I know that's one other thing that you wanted to touch on, which is that, look, there are so few of us uh, Mm -hmm. in the West who get this, that get that Russia and China are not our enemy, that our enemy is in Wall Street, our enemy is in the Pentagon, our enemy is in London. Uh, that our enemy is the big corporations and banks, and that Russia and China are are not, you know, the the evil forces that you would think if you watch CNN. And that I want to hold those folks together. And look, you know, I'm a Marxist. You come at things from the the LaRouche tradition, which in, you know I, I understand Marxism is a big influence on, but it's ultimately not your perspective. And look, there are even some libertarian folks I'm willing to talk to about this. This is a serious situation. We need to stop World War III. We need to put forward an alternative vision, and now is not the time for silly, you know, silly left leftist polemics. And I just continue to get frustrated because, I mean, you know, there are there are so many people who just want to want to take this opportunity to denounce and prove they're smarter or well, aha, I've exposed you, and it's just it's not helping. <laughs> we need to actually build something here right? And that that the internet is not real life, folks. Twitter isn't real. Did you know that? Twitter is kind of like Santa Claus. It's kind of like the Easter bunny. It's not real, okay? Twitter is this internet thing, and there's a lot of bots on there, and there's a lot of manipulation. You can subscribe to thousands of people, but certain people are going to show up in your feed, and certain ones are not. It's not real life. We need something in real life. That is what we need more than anything. We need something in real life And that means we have to work with people that we may not agree with on everything. And we have to learn to see common ground. And when there are people that are are forward thinking enough to realize that Russia and China are not our enemy, uh, we need to find a way to cooperate with them, not a way to expose them and feel good about ourselves in isolation. And I mean, I, I'm sure you've noticed. I mean, you do a lot of organizing, Daniel. You don't just talk to leftists like me. You talk to you know, people in the Trump camp. You did a lot of outreach to folks in the Trump camp about Russia and China. And you talk to you know, labor unionists and you talk to community folks. I saw your, your folks were out on the street today leafleting, if I'm not mistaken, about about Russia and China and the Green New Meal right? The, the green new meal, you call it, right? Which I thought was pretty clever. Um, and, you know, I mean, you have to be able to, to to work with people, right? And that there is just so much of this wanting to prove you're right in some kind of internet war at the expense of building real relationships that can actually build the networks of resistance that we need. What do you
1: think, Daniel? Well, I, um, I think it. we can reflect upon the um, advantages that we've had Uh, people are living in such a difficult situation in the United States. Young people surrounded by cynicism, surrounded by the most heinous breakdown in the culture um, and in society and politics and the economy. And, um, you know, you have traveled quite a lot across the world and met with all types of people and done tremendous work. Um, as especially in, uh, uh, I think your work in Yemen, I think it's a uh, kind of thing that can give you an insight into what is actually going on in the world, right? which is difficult. Uh, so I, you know, I empathize with people, but the fact that, um, you need to, if you don't have the benefit of those experiences, which, you know, I've had my own and I'm very grateful for them. Um, then you need to figure it out somehow. You need to go and think about what is actually happening in the rest of the world and get out of the tendency as an American to somehow accept a sense that America, you know, is the everything past the borders of the United States is somehow kind of real, but kind of not and, you know, not really uh, uh, touching our lives um, because I think if people do that, then they will have a more reality-based conception of how we can collaborate to create an independent political, uh, sufficiently independent political capability to respond to the proposals of Russia, of China, of the BRICS Plus, and so forth. Which is what we need. We need some kind of ability to 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 light to catalyze the shift towards collaboration with this new economic uh, paradigm. So. That's the first thing I would say. And if I could go on a little bit more, I'll tell about, um, you know, one thing I'd like to see uh, would be um, for people to take a look at one of the things that we've been able to achieve in the LaRouche movement, which is to get Diane Sayre for U.S. Senate on the ballot. Um, there's There's a piece in the New York Times today. Of course, Diane Sayre is on the Ukrainian blacklist. But there's a piece in the New York Times today Uh, which talks about the fact that because of the incredible increase in the uh, petition requirements for independent candidates, for the first time in 75 years, the governor's race in New York has no independence. It's only the Republican and the Democrat. And this article studiously avoids mentioning that Diane Sayre is the only independent who succeeded uh, on, on that level of office, and, uh, and that by submitting 66,000 signatures, which, by the way, Lee Zeldin, who's running as a Republican for, for, for governor, he was trying to get on one of the uh, lines for, the I believe, the Independent Party. And he had to fake a bunch of signatures and didn't even submit 45,000. Submitted a bunch of faked signatures. It's somewhat of a scandal at the moment. Diane and our movement, we were able to get in. 66,000, significantly above 45,000, which was the requirement. And for comparison, I ran for U.S. Senate in New Jersey as an independent. I needed 800 signatures. We needed 45,000 in New York. Uh, And so there's a media blackout against Diane as a LaRouche candidate. And I think also as someone who appeared on this blacklist, it's possible that there's a relationship to that because, you know, that the the New York Times pays attention to those things. Sure. Um, Anyway, and I would like people to take a look at this because she's someone who you'll find uh, can be a, one of the, the torchbearers for exactly the, the coalition that we're trying to develop.
0: Yeah, well, as far as the whole media blackout thing, I will never forget uh, the day that Maggie Haberman of the New York Times referred to me as, quote, a man claiming to be from RT. That was lovely. <laughs> I was at Donald Trump's press conference. He had called on me at his previous press conference, and mm-hmm. and he's, jo- you know, he, he was like one last question. He's like, "All right, who's my favorite reporter?" You. And so I joked, "Donald Trump says I'm his favorite reporter." <laughs> I called on him. I asked him about Russia. So then, at his his next press conference, I was trying to get his attention. Right? I'm like, "I'm Caleb Moppin, RT. want to talk to you, Donald Trump, or whatever?" So then, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times wrote up the article, and and there was a line in the article that said. A man claiming to be from RT. Well, that's bullshit because Maggie Haberman came up to me, looked at my press badge, wrote down my information. So I'm sure my name was in the original draft of the New York Times article. But then they thought, now, do we want people to Google this guy and listen to what he's saying? Of course not. And so the New York Times article came out and a man claiming from RT was repeatedly rebuffed as he tried to get Donald Trump's attention, something like that. I'll never forget that. That was particularly interesting and there's other people that that do this kind of work that talk about being the invisible man and Mm -hmm. how you know Mm -hmm. you know they'll you know they'll they'll give the interview and it just kind of disappears ahead of time and it's interesting because it's like what's that thing about like you know gandhi he said like first they ignore you and then they attack you and then they try to take credit for what you've done so if you're in the ignore thing you might be safer because after they can't ignore you anymore then you get attacked right then they try to put you in prison like they did with with Lyndon LaRouche or or or, you know, or something like that. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe we're in a little bit of safer territory, but it is that is kind of the situation. And I've noticed that and that these these blacklists, um, they mean a lot to like intelligence entities. And, you know, this notion that American media is just completely free. Right. It's, you know, I'm tagged as Russian state affiliated media and and, you know, there's China state affiliated media. All mainstream U.S. media is handled by the government right and that the operation mockingbird you can read about it these are historical facts that that sure you can have alternative like indie blogs and stuff like that but if it's mainstream media primetime cable news you can bet there are wings of the intelligence apparatus that are carefully overlooking what is allowed and what isn't allowed you can be sure of that you can be absolutely sure of that so um so yeah um, I guess a couple other people are asking us questions here, um, so let me let me pull up. I guess Caleb will bring Populist Party of Kansas. <laughs> uh, there you go. I don't know what I'm going to do in Kansas. We were just we just had a great conference in Kansas, by the way. Daniel was there for some of it, gave a, a great presentation. We're putting some of the, the videos up on the web. That was fun. I'm now in Chicago getting ready for our conference, and then we also got somebody else is saying here thoughts on environmentalist um, Greta Thunberg attacking China. Well, those darn Chinese, they didn't stay poor. I mean, that was the problem, right? They didn't stay poor. They were supposed to stay poor for the sake of Mother Earth, and they didn't. How dare they? How dare they? How dare they? (laughs) Right? But what are you going to say on that, Daniel?
1: Um, I think it's pretty useful uh, because it demonstrates that uh, this policy coming down from Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England, from Sir Michael Bloomberg, and from associated people, of course, other people in decades past, like Al Gore. But this policy of um, claiming that, that, uh, that, you know, human economic activity is causing a catastrophe for the environment, it's a geopolitical policy. It comes down, it is derived from absolutely the same principles of geopolitics, which is the idea of limited resources, and, uh, you know, that therefore, Every nation is in a war of each against all because they all you can't possibly have common interests if you're all fighting over the same pie. Right. And uh, and it's a fraud because the nature of human discovery is that we we create new resources and we are able to advance them for the world. And, you know, that's what the shared community of destiny for mankind is from 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 China's standpoint. I think it's quite clear.
0: And that's one thing that you have pointed out that I think you're absolutely right about is that that there are so many leftists who want to celebrate the downfall of the United States. Right. They want to be like, well, maybe we like Russia and China, but America is an evil country. It needs to crash and burn. And look how woke and revolutionary I am. You're not helping if you do that, because that's not real politics, number one. And number two, you know, that's not progressive kind of thinking. Right. If you were in America and you were wanting Russia and China to burn, we would obviously oppose that. But that shouldn't be the attitude. It shouldn't be, you know, one country gains at the expense of another country. We shouldn't view things that way. It should be that Russia and China and the United States work together to raise up all mankind. That should be the attitude. And that is a winning policy. You know, we should want to improve the United States and make life better for the American people by working in coordination with governments that are making life better for their people around the world right this is this is real politics and and that unfortunately there is kind of a a wing of folks that are you know more understanding about Russia and China that still hold this attitude like they want they want the United States to come apart and crash and burn well obviously we want to get rid of the prison industrial complex and the military industrial complex we want to get rid of the big Wall Street banks that dominate the you know the the economy we want to get rid of you know unemployment and and things like that we want to get rid of racism and such but We do want a better country. Socialism, in my view, is about making a better country for working families, right? It's about, you know, increasing the amount of food that's available so people can eat. I mean, increasing the amount of jobs, increasing living standards. So, you know, I mean, you know, it's not the right attitude to view this as East versus West. And, oh, well, I'm on the East side, so that makes me woke (laughs) and progressive. You know, I mean, you've noticed this too, I think, Daniel, right?
1: Yeah, I definitely have. And, um... You know, I want to warn some of the people who are watching who may have, you know, thought about this, that these ideas are intended to seduce you. So they're not necessarily so obvious right up front what you're dealing with. Like, for example, I will uh, I will go on... <laughs> I'm going to go on record, say, uh, talking about the guy who everyone... Before they... Well, who, who everyone really wanted to hit you with, which is uh, Alexander Dugan. Mm-hmm. Um, Dugan, uh, from everything that I have read from him uh, is one of these types of people who says that basically, um, well, for example, he states that peace is only a tool and that, uh, you know, that there is sort of an undying war of geopolitics and that peace is just one of the clubs that is used to achieve the things that people want. And he cites Carl Schmidt as being one of the, Uh, uh, you know, the Nazi crown jurist as being one of the, uh, um, you know, influences on this thought. And if you think that way, then even if you say I'm against liberalism and I'm against the, you know, the Anglo liberalism or the Anglo American empire, whatever you want to say, you know, I'm against all that, the Western neoliberal system, and I'm for the Eurasian, then you're not, you're not solving the problem. You're just doing blocks, but you're, you're, you're on the other side. And, uh, and it does not contain the conception of peace through development of the mutual benefit of nations and, uh, and of the, the, the idea that we would go towards a conception of the one mankind. So,
0: Yeah, well, I've learned a lot from Dugan's work. I don't agree with him. He's a conservative. And I mean, one of the main points that he emphasizes in mo- almost every one of his books is that he thinks that the conception of historical progress is not correct. Mm-hmm. I guess he agrees with Chris Hedges, who says similar things. That he believes <laughs> yeah. that the past, the present, and the future are equal. We're not going forward. We're not going backward. Yes, We're just existing. Exactly. And I mean, historical progress is essential to my worldview. I mean, I'm sorry, but I believe in historical progress. I think progress is the essence of being a human being. Right? Is that you know you don't you don't get you know you you, you you get older, you don't get younger, you know, you, you, you learn as you get older, you, you, your mind develops, and that, you know, historical progress is really just, just an essential part of my beliefs, and so that's where I, I really diverge from, from anything that Dugan has to say on that front, you know, he comes out of Marxism, he's rooted in, in a Marxist tradition, and then there's elements of, of traditionalism, and nationalism, and, He's he's a mixed bag, you know, and he's an important thinker in Russia. And I'm not ashamed to have gone and met with him and I would do it again. And and the notion that he's Hitler or he's a Nazi is (laughs) the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right. Because he's clearly not that right. His entire conception of the fourth political theory, it's the fourth. Because communism, the second, and fascism, the third, are no good. So he's rejecting fascism. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a proud Russian patriot. He's proud of the defeat of the Nazis. He's proud of, of Russia's history you know, in the Second World War. He denounces fascism. He's, he's a uh, supporter of African people and their struggle for national liberation. So, you know, I don't agree with him. But this notion, people that try to make him Hitler and then me, I'm then Hitler by default because I talk to him and I, I defend <laughs> him. It's really, really frustrating, and I mean, it really goes to show you how they, they really work overtime. They just work overtime to try and control the narrative. I saw that today yes. they were making this Wagner group trend on social media, oh, right? yeah. trying to cover up the fact they've got a whole army full of neo Nazis in Ukraine, Azov battalion that are tearing down World War II memorials that have a Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera as a hero. Uh, and so there's this rumor that maybe this, like, one fighting group in Russia might possibly be named Wagner or Wagner after something. It's this really long hoop, okay? It's <laughs> this really, really long hoop, all right? And it's like, we all know what the Azov Battalion was. You can Google who Stepan Bandera is. Stephen King, you know, can be an idiot. We saw the clip <laughs> of Stephen Stepan Bandera. but. But, you know, we all know that. And, and they're just really trying, you know, to, 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 you know, to make the tail wag the dog or put the shoe on the other foot or, or yeah. whatever. And it, I mean, it just really shows you how how downright pathetic it is. But ultimately, we got to urge people to get off social media. I mean, I'm on Twitter all day long and, and, yeah, and such, but, but really, it's not good for your brain. If I had children, I would probably not let them go on social media. You know, I I would tell them to you know wait until you're 18. You know, I mean you have to get on social media to do political promotion, but we just need people to understand that it's not real. It's not real life, you know. And uh, you know, also wake up in the morning with classical music and go to sleep every night with classical music. That's my self help advice. I'm actually I'm actually working on a a short self help book aimed at communists. Mm. Uh, that I'm oh, I love that. Up. I'm going to finish it up after this conference. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm including the classical music thing in it for sure. So there you of go. Course. Yeah, but but what else is on your mind tonight, Daniel?
1: Um, I I guess um, you know I I I would in, I want to encourage people to think through uh, what you started with, namely the sort of the causes of the crisis that we are in. Uh, I am convinced of the Schiller Institute um, thesis that this is a matter of the. Uh, impending breakdown and you know, ongoing breakdown onrushing breakdown of the enormous bubble of financial paper uh, and uh, and the systemic this the, the systemic crisis of the economy uh, which is the absolute end of or I mean not an absolute end but radical collapse of credit in the United States, formed in the, in the United States going to the physical economy, which is obvious to anyone who has eyes and rides on any, any highway. Um, there's a collapse in that capability and there's this growth of this gigantic cancerous bubble. And so what we are uh, proposing is, um, we have a, uh, a petition that we're putting out, people can find on the Schiller Institute website, that calls for a new Bretton Woods system, a new international financial system which would require, among eight steps, canceling the worthless debt of uh, of Wall Street, City of London, and, and otherwise through a Glass-Steagall policy type of policy in different in every part of the world, and uh, and to get this kind of national credit, state-directed credit for physical infrastructure moving. Um, and um, I I want to say, well, you have you're a signer of the petition. Thank you very much, Caleb. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're joined on that list by the uh, prime minister of the Houthi government in Yemen. Oh, wow. So we're getting some wonderful um, signers onto this, and I want to encourage everyone who's listening to this to study it, consider it, and please sign it as well and endorse it.
0: Very good. And I guess I'll just one more time remind people that if you you want to see Daniel Burke, uh, you can come to our great, amazing conference that we are going to be having Uh, August 6th, uh, in the Chicago area, Deerfield, Illinois, the Hyatt Regency Deerfield Hotel. Daniel will be joining a panel of of guest speakers, allies from the Party of Communists and the People's Party and the Free Alex Saab Committee. We're also going to have Dan Kabalik and Tara Reid and Garland Nixon and Peter Coffin, and it's going to be awesome. Music, there's going to be great musical performances. Uh, It's going to be really, really great. So we we hope folks can join us at this great conference coming up. And if you wanna send a donation to help us have our conference, uh, you can send it to CPI events on Cash App, or you can Zell me um, at calebmopin at gmail.com and on Zell. So I'm just putting that in the chat, that information if people wanna send a donation to help us cover the expenses. A lot of people are coming in from out of town uh, to help us out with this conference. Uh, so, you know, I'm here in the, the Airbnb. Uh, Lily's here with me. Uh, you know, David and Elizabeth are here with me. David's from Texas. Uh, Elizabeth from D.C. Uh, but, uh, you know, we got people coming in from Iowa, and we got people coming in from from missouri and it's you know this is the center for political innovation is moving ahead we are uh, a socialist group that is breaking out of this this left uh, you know the synthetic left nonsense out of the movement to the masses so i hope you'll join us at this event i know daniel's going to be there i'm looking forward to his presentation i think you're going to pitch this petition in your presentation, yes. right that's that's the plan if i'm not mistaken so i'm looking mm-hmm. forward to that um and uh all right well thank you daniel um i guess uh on that note uh we'll catch you next time all my best uh be in touch see you soon
1: thank you so much caleb take care thank you
0: yep there we go all righty that was fun it's always fun to talk to daniel everybody welcome 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 so glad to have you all here that was a great chat with daniel burke he's going to be joining us um that's gonna be awesome. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, look, the US economy is now in a recession. The Biden administration says it's not really a recession. It's not really a recession, it's just a transition to a period of slower growth. You know, That's what the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen said. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the costs of food are going up, the costs of gasoline are going up, 40 year high in inflation. Uh, we're in a situation where the you know the House of Representatives is sending Nancy Pelosi to engage in a provocation to try and start start World War III with with China as if the tension with Russia is not enough. Um, meanwhile, Russia and China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are building up an alternative economy. Now is the time more than ever to say that we need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. That is what we need, we so badly need that. Right now we have a government that serves the rich and is leading humanity off a cliff that thinks the only way to solve the problems of capitalism is with degrowth, and driving down living standards, making everyone poor so that Wall Street and London can stay rich. But we say there is an alternative beyond capitalism We can have a society where the banks and the factories and the major industries and the centers of economic power can operate to serve the good of the people and not the profits of a wealthy few. We can have a socialist society where the working class takes power and starts moving us toward a better tomorrow, a world of vast abundance where the state and inequality and hierarchies can break down on the basis of of great abundance. and, And that's what we're fighting for. I'm going to write down your super chat there, Gleb. Um, How would a socialist government handle agriculture? Writing that down. Thank you very much, Gleb, for that super chat. Much appreciated. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need that more than ever. That's what we need in the United States right now and the the billionaire monopolists and the bankers and the ultra-rich corporations and monopolists that run the united states uh they are enemies not just of the people around the world africa asia and latin america but they are enemies of the american people uh and it is the american people uh who ultimately have a historic responsibility to rise up and break the united states out of the open international system and rebuild the United States on new foundations of solidarity, brotherhood, uh, the popular will, collective good, building a society where the people's needs come first, where equality and inequality is broken down, where equality is created, where social hierarchies are uprooted, where communities that have historically been oppressed are raised up, uh, where we have a future for our young people. That's what we're striving for, right? We need a government that no longer sees the broad masses of people as simply some kind of you know you know unwanted vile horde that needs to be managed you know give them some video games give them some pornography to control them but rather but rather sees the broad masses of americans as full of potential that could be unleashed to build a whole new society that is what we need we need a government of action that will fight for working families and we have a four-point plan at the Center for Political Innovation, a four-point plan to bring that about. The first step would be mobilizing the country to build, hiring the unemployed and underemployed young people, putting them to work, rebuilding the country, building highways and bridges and high-speed railway and new power plants, new water treatment facilities, new schools and new universities. That's what we ultimately want, Uh, you know, we want for the country, Um, some super chats here. Pros, cons, of anti-revisionism. All right. All right, wrote that one down. i got to scroll up and see the next one. See the next one, right? Workers and peasants of the world unite. Very good. I agree with that. Not a question. But the second point in our plan is public control of our natural resources oil coal gas timber you know the profits made from the natural wealth of the soil and the ground of the united states should go into the public budget should be the property of all the people we should use the proceeds from our natural resources to build better hospitals and schools public control of our natural resources step three is public control of the banking system the lending of money should not be done based on what is profitable but for what is overall in the economic interest of the country. We as a community should come together and set the agenda. If we want better housing in our communities, we should have the banks loan money to create better housing. If we want a stronger agricultural sector, we should have the banks lend money to the farmers. If we if we want to build up the economy of the country and have unlimited growth, we should guide the banking sector. The purse strings of credit should be controlled. In the interests of the communities and of the country at a state federal and local level we call for public control of our banking system no more federal reserve uh no no more private banks but instead have the lending of money a monopoly on credit in the hands of the state and the fourth item the fourth item would be that then we would enact an economic bill of rights like roosevelt proposed the right to a job the right to housing the right to education with those four points That four point economic plan, public control of banking, public control of natural resources, a mobilization to rebuild the country, an economic bill of rights, that would be such a mobilization of popular power that we would be very close on the road to socialism. That it would be, these are demands that challenge the power of the capitalists and set us on the road to having a government of action that fights for working families. This four point plan of the Center for Political Innovation It should be raised everywhere. And of course, we know that such a plan is not going to be enacted simply by voting for your favorite politician. But we are raising this demand by going to people to encourage thought, to wake them up from their slumber. We're hypnotized by our phones. We're hypnotized by social media. We're hypnotized by pornography. We're hypnotized by drugs. And the idea of our four-point plan is to wake people from their slumber. Wake them up wake them up and say why can't we have these things why can't they rebuild america instead of bombing countries overseas why can't they go ahead and have our natural resources and our banking system be oriented for the benefit of the people in the country why can't we have an economic bill of rights and raise demands as a question why can't the government do these things raise them as a way to awaken people from their slumber to get people to understand the nature of the government and the need for us to build communities of solidarity and communities of resistance that can build up working class power to fight for these kinds of things. This is how socialists organize, right? We're not trying to lull you asleep. We're not trying to just get you to unleash your rage in in an emotional display of, of revolutionary anger or something like that. We're not just trying to give you permission to be full of rage. Instead, we're trying to get you to think rationally. We're trying to get you to awaken your rational mind and become an active person, an active person, and take up history's challenge. That's what we're asking for, folks, to do. That is what we are asking them to do. And by putting forward our transitional program, our four-point plan, we are intending to awaken the the reasonable side, the rational side, the scientific side of the human mind and push people into a situation where they can struggle where they can struggle. That's what we are trying to do with our four point plan. That's what we are trying to do. And look, I want to be real with folks and then we'll go to our roll call and then I'll start answering super chat questions for the rest of the night. I do want to be real with folks and point out that at the end of the day, most people in this country are asleep. They're asleep and we have to walk a tightrope. We don't want to be elitists. We don't want to look down on average americans we don't want to have contempt for them and think we're better than them and say oh these are a bunch of sheeple we hate them we don't want to have that attitude because if we have that attitude we're going to lose our compassion and our love for our fellow american people so we must avoid any elitist attitude but we must also recognize that there is something different about communists joseph stalin and his speech at lenin's funeral he said that communists are cut from a special mold. It is not for everyone to be a communist. That it takes uh, it takes a special mold. Wow, someone's running for mayor. Um, there you go. Uh, you know it, it, uh, it takes a special mold. You know it, it takes a special type of person to be a communist, right? Um, it takes a special type of person to do this, um, and uh, you know we are we are cut from a special mold and when we take up history's challenge and when we do that at that point we are really alive because most people unfortunately while we love them and while we work hard to wake them up uh most people are living only biologically they are technically alive if a biologist or a doctor or a scientist looked at them they would say they are alive they are biologically living but they are only living biologically and that's that's one thing that we need to be real about these people are living but they are only living biologically they are not awake they are not awake psychologically they are not awake politically they are not tuned into the world around them and how it works and our job is to change that and a revolution is a moment where no one can only live biologically, where history shakes everyone and forces them to make a choice. That's what a revolution is. In a revolutionary situation, politics is something that one cannot escape. It is staring you right in the face and demanding an answer. That is what a revolutionary situation is. And when a revolutionary situation arises, it is the duty of the vanguard party to be in a position to give answers, to provide leadership, to provide a program, to provide an army of worker politicians capable of stepping up and taking up leadership. And right now, we are not in a revolutionary crisis in the country. Most of the country remains asleep, but more people are waking up than I've ever seen before in my lifetime. People are waking up, and as people are awakening and saying there's something wrong There's something rotten in the state of Denmark, the billionaires and the bankers that run the country. These wars were raging around the world. The fact that our children uh, are committing suicide and getting shot up in school and that our drinking water is not properly purified and that our, our food costs just keep going up and up. America's working families are being more and more faced with history's challenge. And our duty is to take this moment and awaken all who can be awakened and build the communities of solidarity and build up the base among the population, the communities of people who can have each other's back, who can give each other the love and the care they haven't been given to by this society, to build up the block of resistance, the solid block of anti-imperialism in the heart of the empire, that when the moment arises and swing into action, and make history and remake a whole new America beyond empire, beyond racism, beyond inequality and greed, a new America for working families, a new America where we stand together as one and march into the future, building ourselves up. Imagine what America is going to look like after our first five-year economic plan just imagine what it will look like after we start mobilizing the young americans to go out and build and to construct imagine what america is going to look like after we no longer have these billionaires and bankers ruling over us but instead we have a centrally planned economy imagine imagine what restoring detroit restoring pittsburgh restoring chicago restoring restoring Pennsylvania and Philadelphia restoring restoring Kansas City restoring St. Louis restoring the great cities throughout the American heartland will build imagine what will happen when city builders take control of the American country imagine what that'll be like right so many so many of these these rust belt cities in the Midwest they're falling apart the economy just can't get going living standards are going down They've replaced the good jobs with heroin and opioids. And as that situation deteriorates, they continue to have a series of bad ideas about how to improve the city. Oh, they always wanna go build a giant casino. Build a giant casino in the middle of the city, right? Let people gamble away their money. And sometimes the city pays for the big giant casino. In Cleveland, you know, steel yards common, the steel yards that used to employ thousands and thousands of union steel workers, they replaced steel yards common uh, they built they built a giant walmart and a giant sam's club a low-wage non-union service sector employer that's the future that the big bankers and monopolies have for our country but imagine if the city building tendency took control of the united states and we started teaming up with china and we rebuilt rebuilt this country with high-speed railway we brought in the china railway corporation to build beautiful exciting new trains across america imagine that the united states of america we we teamed up with russia and we built instead of exxon mobil and bp and shell and chevron we built an amazing state-run oil and state-run natural gas company and all of a sudden our cities weren't going bankrupt and our states weren't going bankrupt, but they had a huge amount of money because the money being made off of our oil and gas was going into the public budget to feed Americans, to build new schools and hospitals for the country. Imagine if we were doing that. Imagine if growth was what we were teaching, that we were we were teaching our young children in school that they could be anything that they wanted to be when they grow up they could be an astronaut they could be a scientist we were teaching math and science we were instead of having the lowest test scores in the western world we were having the highest test scores in the western world we had we had a whole new educational system that taught children to think and taught them to understand the world around them it wasn't designed to just make them into little robots to go off and die in a foreign war or be able to be able to you know be baristas at starbucks but we had an educational system that turned our kids into being einsteins imagine if we did that we could do all these things but in order to do it we must build communities of solidarity in the communist manifesto Karl marx talks about combinations combinations that's what he talks about and and many people see that as labor unions in fact a lot of the editions of the communist manifesto that i've seen that talk about this they talk about you know they say combinations it says Says the workers form
1: combinations.
0: Is he then saying? Is he saying that they join the AFL or the CIO? Uh, no, he's saying that they form groups to care for each other. They form groups to work with each other. That's what he's saying in the Communist Manifesto. I'll read it one more time. It says, "It says the increasing improvement of machinery, ever made more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collusions between the individual workmen." And the individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between classes the two classes thereupon the workers begin to form combinations against the bourgeoisie they club together in order to keep their rate of wages and they found permanent associations to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts here and there the contest breaks into riots now and then workers are victorious but only for a time the real fruit of their battle lies not in the immediate results, but in the ever-expanding union of the workers. That as they cast us out of the system, as we stand out cast and starving amid the wonders that we have made, as we, as we stand out cast and starving amid the wonders that we have made, as living conditions get worse, as living conditions get worse and worse and worse, the workers have ultimately no choice. They have ultimately no choice. But to form combinations, combinations, workers' associations, workers' associations to care for each other and to build up for the coming battle. And the future of the working class lies in the ever-expanded union of workers when we begin to form combinations and associations of ourselves working class power this is the road to the future of the working class this is important stuff and it's important that we talk about these things all right folks i am going to do the roll call i call you out as i see you names and locations names and locations who's with us tonight and then i'll start answering super chats and then we'll be done names and locations names and locations who's with us who's with us tonight names and locations names and locations All right, we got Tim in St. Louis. We got David in Bendigo, Australia. David Fox, good friend of the program. We got Mr. Wonderland. We got Isabel in Toronto. We got Elias in Wisconsin. We got Malaysia, DLJ from Malaysia. Martin, we got Los Angeles. We got Northwest Washington. Colin in Greensboro, St. David's, Bermuda, Chester in England. David in Ontario, Sarajevo, Bosnia, China, and combat liberalism in New Jersey. Please, what is your four-point plan? Everyone, you can find it out. Go to the CPI website, cpiusa.org. Just check it out. It's right there, cpiusa.org. Mark in Utica, uh, Los Angeles, Vicky in Greece. Um, Very, very good. Um, um, We got Bob from Vermont. uh, Christian from Bergen County, Northern New Jersey. Bob in Vermont, uh, Northern California, Gamer for Life. Gamer for Life, all righty. Very, very good. Uh, anybody else? Names and locations. We got Carlos in Timbuktu. We got Alex Hansen in Milwaukee. Uh, Caleb, I know you can read, but why did you mispronounce my name? You're Mr. Wonderful. You're Mr. Wonderful. I'm not mispronouncing your name. Jeff in Detroit. John Whitty in Houston. Philip in Cedar Park, Texas. Pirate Alex, Cleveland. Yada Yisrael. Bob Troy in New York. There we go. There we go. Cumberland, Meriden, Sam Westbrook. Very, 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 very good. Hey, man, I got shouted out. South Korea, South Korea, Vancouver, Canada, Isaac. Very, very good. Richard Fernando in California, huge fan. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm a huge fan of yours, too. Good stuff, folks. Good stuff. Uh, Kit Valk is urging people to call Nancy Pelosi and ask her not to go on her trip to Taiwan wow yeah there you go she's provided the details there you know stopping world war three might be a good idea you know maybe maybe not world war three right now you know you know yeah there you go that's that's an important chat we got jenny from cincinnati catherine from SPFMO, alan uh, rees charles manson is dead so he's probably not here but there you go that's very funny though the new book on charles manson i recommend it Uh, you know, about all how everything we know about that case is wrong, you know, about operation chaos and the CIA and all that, you know, all that stuff that that, that the synthetic left says isn't real, that is documented. All right. We got the hunchback of Notre Dame. We got, uh, Nomori in slumberland. Very, very good. Long live CPI. Robert from Hawaii. Robert's awesome. Long time friend of our community. Mike from West Virginia is with us. Jay in Connecticut. Uh, Alex loves us and all that we do. Well, very, very good. We're doing the best we can. Doing the best we can, folks. All right. All right. Now I'm going to start answering super chats. First super chat question is, how would a socialist government handle the question of agriculture? Well, if you look at the model of really existing socialism that you saw in the Soviet Union, Stalin's uh, economic model, the way the question of agriculture was handled, um, was that, uh, you know, in the 1920s, they had, you know, you know, private, you know, private farming, private enterprise. Then in the 1930s, they, they transitioned to mostly collective farming, where these farms would be independent of the government, but they would sell their produce to the government at a set rate. The government would buy the wheat for so much, it would buy the cattle for so much and that's how the collective farms work Is they produced the goods it was like a cooperative and then they got paid for how much they produced right and and they were they were independent and the government paid out how much they produced and then they also in the soviet union had state farms to some degree or other and these state farms were just like government factories where workers got paid a wage to work on the farm uh and that was how it worked um now in socialism now you'll notice that they have more of a combination you know in china there are private farms there are collective farms um there are state farms in china and that you know in venezuela they don't have very much agriculture that's one of the weaknesses of their economy they have to import most of their food Uh, but there are a lot of farm cooperatives i actually visited a farm cooperative in venezuela that made uh chocolate cacao beans and it was really interesting to talk to the you know the workers there that um you know that that worked on this farm cooperative they were afro venezuelans um you know the venezuelans took us there and they're on this island and they they grow uh chocolate you know that's what they grow and they're a cooperative uh, kind of a collective farm if you will um you know in russia there are state farms there are private farms that receive a government subsidy putin has rebuilt the agricultural sector russia is not a socialist country but i'm just telling you what they do and that the, the question of agriculture is based on what will increase output and what will be most beneficial to the country The soviet union had private farming in the 1920s then they moved toward mostly collective farms with some state farms right? Um, I think some socialist countries have had all state farming and some socialist countries now have a combination, you know, that that these things need to be handled. You need to produce food. Food is so vitally important. One thing that would definitely happen in a socialist America was breaking apart the big agribusiness monopolies, right? Um, you know, Kraft and Monsanto and these giant corporations that have huge swaths of of land uh, and they they dominate the food markets. They would have to be Either nationalized or broken up, and it may be in the uh, in the interest of efficiency, it may be necessary to uh, to nationalize them. Uh, but it may be that we may want to break them up to to you know have cooperative farms or to have have uh, enterprises. It would have to be based on what would be best in terms of output. How could we produce the most food most efficiently and feed our people and uh, and make money selling food to other countries, right? But it would be about breaking up the the big you know, agribusiness monopolies that dominate the world and have devastated the economies of so many developing countries. So there you go. Um, and then someone said, what are the pros and cons of anti-revisionism? Um, well, what is anti-revisionism? Let me just ask you, what is anti-revisionism? What is it? I mean, I don't know what it is, right? I mean, revisionism is a term that was coined by Edward Bernstein. Edward Bernstein was a Marxist in the 1880s and 1890s, who came to the conclusion you didn't need a revolution. That Capitalism in the Western countries would just kind of naturally evolve into socialism. Karl Kautsky and German social democracy and the main line of Marxism rejected revisionist Marxism and repudiated revisionism, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Rosa Luxemburg wrote a pamphlet against Bernstein called Reform or Revolution. Uh, Kautsky, you know, critiqued Bernstein. Bernsteinite um, is neo-feudalism progressive no no it's not um you know uh we'll talk about neo-feudalism uh you know and kautsky uh kautsky was repudiated by the second international uh then later in the 1960s uh, china accused the soviet union of being revisionist of watering down marxism of abandoning the world revolutionary movement in the name of appeasing the united states and so the, the Chinese and the Albanians started accusing their uh, their their rivals in the socialist movement, Khrushchev, of revisionism, of deviating from the from the principles of Marxism-Leninism. This pamphlet Long Live Leninism, uh, the difference between Comrade Tagliati and us, um, you know, there's a number of pamphlets that the Chinese Communist Party published critiquing revisionism, critique of the general line of the international communist movement. There's a number of these big documents that are really worth reading. I mean, we're planning to republish some of them with the Center for Political Innovation because they're very important um, for to discuss. You know, to learn what 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 were the, what were the differences and what was being fought for in this critique of Marxism. Uh, you know, what is um, what is revisionism so I think it's important to obviously you know defend the idea that we could have a fully socialist society that we do want a new workers state that we do want to dismantle imperialism however a lot of people in the name of anti revisionism embrace ultra leftism they say ah oh, that means we should go around promoting violence or oh that means we should just scream revolution and not not build a mass base. Ah, oh, that means we shouldn't put forward a program that would make sense to people. We should just sound like crazy LARPers or ultra leftists, right? So, so there's, there's something to be said for trying to be rational and carry out a correct line while also holding on to your principles, right? They often give us a false dichotomy. Either completely abandon your beliefs or completely abandon your beliefs or become a crazy lunatic well you don't have to do that I always point out that the the DSA the Democratic Socialists of America and the folks who run the Communist Party USA and the folks at the Committees of Correspondence they talk a great line when they criticize the left when they are criticizing communists and leftists and anarchists they talk a great line they know exactly about how isolated these folks are uh you know if if you say to them out of the movement to the masses and i want to get to average people they get that however in their minds that means abandon everything and just become join the democratic party right they think to the masses means to the democratic party and uh you know so they're half right right they're right in critiquing Anarchists and workers' world and RCP and Maoists and Trotskyites, they talk a great line. They do this great tap dance about how isolated these folks are, how they don't have a mass base. But then in their minds, the solution is just abandon everything you believe in and join DSA and say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the government gave people free stuff and vote for the Democrats? So they're half right. Meanwhile, I think that a lot of these Trotskyites, And a lot of these anarchists and a lot of these social Democrats, they're half right as well. Uh, They do do this whole critique of CPUSA and DSA and committees of correspondence where it's like, oh, these people have abandoned. They're just a bunch of Democrats. They want to water everything down. They don't care about communism. OK, but what is the solution? Well, in their mind, the solution is to be an ultra leftist screaming and yelling isolated from the broad masses. Well, at the end of the day, we should do neither. We need to go to the masses with a program a working class program and that means on the one hand getting rid of all the cancel culture and purity culture and demands and everyone's a nazi and everyone's a nazbol and get rid of all of that which is coming from the synthetic left and the ultra-left also get rid of this support this belief that we must be defending joe biden and supporting joe biden it's coming from the you know the revisionists or the main line we just need to do our own thing cuz at the end of the day what we're doing is not about defending Biden it's not about defeating the ultra right it's not about you know hating America and wanting to destroy this country to show how woke you are what we're doing at the end of the day is we're pushing socialism as a solution to the problems facing America's working families we want socialism to build a better America that's what we want we want to build a new country for working families with socialism and that's not a Democrat message, It's not a Republican message, not a liberal message, It's not a conservative message. Um, it's a message that is that is fundamentally challenging the economic basis of this society and wanting to embrace the alternative economy that's emerging now centered around Russia and China, where the chaos of the market is no longer in command. So there we go. Those are the, the anti revisionism questions. Someone asked me about neo feudalism. There's no such thing as neo feudalism right i mean you know at the time that karl marx wrote the communist manifesto there were people that were criticizing capitalism reactionary socialism feudal socialism they wanted to go back to feudalism that existed at the time of karl marx There a lot of people that just you know said oh my god you know this this brave new world of capitalism We've abandoned, we need to go back to the, you know, feudal monarchy, the feudal system where serfs have their place and, and we have the chivalry and the mysticism, uh, you know, um, Russell Brand, you know, you know, we need to go back to that, right? That, that was, that was around at Karl Marx's time. That was quite popular nowadays feudalism is pretty much eradicated it doesn't exist very much there are maybe little remnants you know maybe in the the mountains of of some you know impoverished country in in central asia you might find some feudal relations between very very impoverished people or something like that for the most part it doesn't exist right so the idea of neo-feudalism it's not really a factor we're not going to go back to feudalism it's not coming back feudalism isn't just kings and queens feudalism is an economic system based on subsistence farming it's based on growing food only no no industry barely any industry maybe blacksmiths maybe a basket weaver or two but ultimately the entire economy is centered around people who work out in the fields growing food with horse-drawn plows and sickles and scythes, and landowners and landlords and soldiers and that is that system the feudal system the feudal order is long gone and it ain't coming back so you know the term neo-feudalism is often used to attack socialist countries but these countries are not feudal because the economic system of china or russia or venezuela or north korea is not uh it's not a feudal economic system i'm sorry but they have industries they have different relations of production you you can say you don't feel like they're really socialist um you know um but they're not feudalism okay so there you go over socialization on the u.s left we can talk about that all righty all right all right russell brand is the next super chat i had the opportunity to meet russell brand one time i was part of the occupy wall street protest as you'll remember good friend of mine from occupy wall street said hey caleb i am having a reception with the great Russell brand today uh, and we would like you to come and hang out with Russell Brand. And I, I saw it said okay, I'm interested but then I looked I looked and I saw that Noam Chomsky was speaking at the United Nations and I was working with press TV and they really wanted me to cover Noam Chomsky speaking at the United Nations. so I had to tell my dear good friend from Occupy Wall Street, I'm sorry, I can't go hang out with Russell Brand today. I have to go to the UN. Well, you know, and I did. And I I interviewed Noam. I asked Noam Chomsky a question at the UN. I didn't interview him. I asked him from the floor of the UN. I asked him about the assassination of Iranian nuclear scientists. And he replied to me by answering with the four D's of dodgeball. Dip, dodge, duck, and dodge. Uh, He completely didn't answer my question. You can watch Caleb Mopp and Noam Chomsky. That was our interaction we had at the United Nations. Um, So I did that thing and I didn't get to hang out with Russell Brand. But I like a lot of what Russell Brand is putting out there, you know? He's criticizing the system, he's critical of capitalism. I know he's kind of into the new age hippie thing, which is not my cup of tea, but you know, Russell Brand's an interesting guy and um, you know, there you go. Um, there you go. Um, all right. And we got some more questions here over socialization on the US left. Well, look, when you talk about over socialization, it's people being afraid To take a tough stand uh, because they don't want to be breaking the rules. They've been over-socialized, right? Socialization is an important thing, right? You know, why is it that, you know, people, you know, you know, I don't know, they don't pick their nose in public. Why is it people don't, you know, don't, you know, pee on the floor, but they pee in a toilet? You you learn to do things that other human beings want you to do. It's part of what we all go through. It's part of childhood. It's called socialization. You learn to follow the rules. Right. You learn not to pee in the middle of the room and instead to pee in the toilet. You learn not to pick your nose and not to do gross things. You, you know, and this is socialization. Right. And, and you learn to, to walk and you learn you know, that we learn to do things that other human beings want us to do. Humans are collective creatures in nature. Nature and socialization itself is good. That's why, you know, if you ever see someone who's been in solitary confinement. Right. They might have all the food they need but they're damaged psychologically. It destroys a person psychologically to be put in solitary confinement because human beings need other human beings, right? We define ourselves in relation to other human beings. So, you know, socialization is good. Over-socialization is when people are afraid, afraid to assert their own principles, their own needs because of, you know, fear of punishment. They just are so determined to get social reinforcement that they are unable to take a tough stand and i do see that on the left a lot i mean the cancel culture i mean i've seen some examples recently that are just insane right where it's like you know anybody that that uh that is part of our city building tendency or whatever you know as soon as it becomes known that folks are are part of the center for political innovation uh they just immediately get blackballed why why? I mean, the, we don't. We're not asking. We're not telling people to quit the Communist Party. We're not telling people to quit, you know, their local LGBT rights group or their local uh, human rights group. We're not telling people. We are not telling people to, uh, you know, to 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 you know to stop, you know, marching for peace and and stop. We're not doing any of that. But for some reason, there are there is a group of people that are really out to get us. That are just really out to get us and are so determined to over-socialize people and makes people afraid, you know, oh my God, are you associated with CPI? They're bad, they're no good, you know, they are determined, right? And what they don't understand is the people that associate with us are people, you know, it's not something people just do on a whim. They're like, oh, I'm gonna hang out with Caleb and then I'm gonna go bowling and then I'm gonna go fishing. No, everyone who's part of the CPI, we have hundreds of members, you know, and every one of those members knows that we have been smeared, knows that we've been hated and they have made a fucking decision and they've said this is the group for me and i ain't backing down and you could tell me they're naz bowls and they're fascists or whatever they don't care right so they don't get that so when they attack these people and they kick them out of their you know of their local chess club for being part of cpi or whatever when they do that right uh all they're doing all they're doing is reinforcing on into folks minds about how important the cpi is um because we're not going anywhere we're not going to stop existing we are going to fight for working families we're going to fight for racial equality we are going to fight against their ugly wars we are going to fight against their lies we're going to stand up for truth um we're going to do that so you know i mean these people that are utilizing and trying to utilize over socialization to weaken our movement are only hurting themselves at the end of the day so there you go all right folks i think i am out of wind i am out of wind uh, because it's a long night, and I'm here, and I'm working hard, working hard here in um, here in uh, in Chicago to build our conference. So we're going to end tonight. Thanks, everybody. Upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today.